1 Peter 4, 7 through 11. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Father, again we bow. We ask you to bless our study of your word. Use your word to change our lives, that we might be a church that magnifies you. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. What you expect to do tomorrow has a strong impact on what you choose to do today. True? Right? If you have a very early meeting, what do you do? You go to bed early. Also, if you're a smart person, you go to bed early. If you have a day off tomorrow, you might stay up late. You might catch a movie, get the end of the late night football game. A runner preparing for a long race, they might eat a bunch of carbs to load up for the next day. At least I hear that's what they do. I don't do that stuff. A person getting ready to go to the dentist might floss at least once just so you can tell the dentist you did it. You don't want to be that guy that when the dentist says, when is the last time you flossed? You say, well, you, you were there. You know, you, 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 you want to, to have something different. What you expect in the future impacts your plans for today. And that's true in big things even more than it is in the little ones. If you know, for example, that you are soon to stand before your God in judgment, that's going to change how seriously you take his commands, don't you think? Maybe it shouldn't, but it surely does. And if you forget that you are soon to be with your Lord you might start living like he's not there. If you expect that the Lord Jesus is going to return to this earth, if you expect Jesus will come back and reign and set all things right, that will make you live differently than if you assume that he's not. Well, last week we were encouraged by Peter to live with a mindset like that of Jesus. Our Savior, he was willing to die before he would ever dishonor God. And one way for us to have that kind of a mindset is for you and me to have eyes that are passionately focused on eternity. We need to remember, friends, that we're in this life not for the long haul, like some people say. We're not in this life for 80 years. We're in for the longest haul because we are to live with God for eternity. And when we know that we live forever, and not just for today, that motivates us to turn away from sinful practices and to live in such a way that would honor the Lord who saved us. Well, this morning we're going to take that eternal mindset a bit further forward as we discover what it means to live out our faith together. 
If you want to take notes, make room for three main points. It's going to be pretty simple. You all ready? You okay this morning, by the way? You're kind of quiet. You good? All right. Let me know. Point number one, live in the light of eternity. Point number one is live in the light of eternity. Look at verse seven. It says, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Last week, if you remember, Peter told us to expect that the world around us would malign us for not leaping with them into their debauchery. It sounds biblical, doesn't it? But Peter then encouraged us in verse 5 that those who would attack us will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. In verse 6, Peter reminded us that even if we die because of our faith, dying physically like all the rest of the world, we will live forever spiritually just like Christ lives eternally after his resurrection. Well, now in verse 7, the same theme is at hand, and Peter tells us the end of all things is at hand. Now, now the Greek word there for end is the word telos. And it's a word that means more than just an ending point, uh, more than a termination. Telos has in it the idea of a thing's purpose. So Peter's telling us that as time marches onward, you and I are walking toward the ultimate final purpose of creation. Yes, we do approach the end. That's true. But we're also approaching the end for which God created the universe. So we live in in a time period that the Bible often refers to simply as the last days. And someday in our future, we know that Christ will return. And every purpose that God has ever had for his creation will be realized. Do you get that? The lost are going to be judged as a display of God's perfect justice and his hatred of sin. The saved will be rewarded to the praise of Christ's glorious grace. See, everything exists for a reason. Everything is in being, in existence, with a perfect purpose from God. And everything that is will end up exactly where God planned for it to be. And not one single thing will be out of place. Nothing is going to leave our God eternally disappointed. All things will work to the glory of God. So Christian, understand that right here today, God wants you to remember you and I are marching toward that end. God wants you to set your mind on eternity. Not just just that there's a forever of time in front of you, but that there is an eternal plan of God that will be carried out. God wants you to remember that you will exist for an eternal purpose and his eternal purpose is at hand. God wants you to remember that we're living here now, but we're waiting for the day to come when Jesus Christ returns and what the Lord has planned is finally fully accomplished. God wants you to remember that this life is not all that there is. God wants you to realize that at any moment, you might find your days on this earth complete. Well, Peter grabs that thought, and then he adds for us a therefore. 
because the end of all things is at hand, there's something you and I are supposed to do. He tells us, be self-controlled and sober-minded. Now, if you keep the context in mind, you're going to see that self-control surely makes sense, doesn't it? The people around the Christians of Asia Minor wanted them to cast off restraint and wanted them to join them in the drunken, immoral revelries that were part of the idol-worshiping culture of that day. And a Christian with self-control would, in the least, be a Christian who said no to those invitations. We keep control. We avoid drunkenness. We avoid sexual immorality. We avoid idolatry. We don't go crazy like the world around us, but we're supposed to keep a thoughtful head on our shoulders. Sober-minded includes physical sobriety. For sure, it's the word for sober. But I think it goes further because if you live soberly, you live with a seriousness, a, a view of the world that's real and not distorted. This life that we live is not a game. We're not walking through a Walt Disney fantasy world here. This life is not a vacation. God didn't create you and save you so that you could bounce through this world without caring about your creator and his purposes. So we need built into our character a seriousness that acknowledges that we are in a massive life and death spiritual struggle to survive. And that fits what we've seen Peter say. Peter wrote something like this in chapter 1. If you, if you look at chapter 1, verse 13, you see Peter say, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Doesn't that sound exactly like the verse we just read? In so many ways, it's the very same concept. Keep a clear mind. Have a ready mind. Don't think just about this world and how you can be comfortable. Think about the grace that's going to be yours when Jesus Christ comes back. And that thinking about that grace will blow the vapors from your brain and make you see this life clearly. See, we know we're approaching the ultimate end of this world, and we know we're approaching God accomplishing all of his purposes. Now, how long is it going to be until that day? We, we, don't, we don't know. We don't, we don't know exactly when it's going to be that Christ returns. But one thing I'm sure of, it is nearer now than when Peter wrote these words. And as you and I look forward and watch the approach of the return of the Lord Jesus, we're supposed to be motivated to be self-controlled, sober-minded people. And if you want another reason why you should do that, Peter says, this is for the sake of your prayers. Does that feel strange there? Why? Well, I mean, on the one hand, a mind cluttered with the selfishness and the trinkets of this world, going to have a hard time praying, don't you think? A brain fogged by this worldly thinking just didn't want to pray. I mean, isn't that honestly why you struggle to pray when you struggle? I'm thinking about other stuff. I'm thinking about what's for dinner. I'm thinking about the meetings I have to have. Prayer's hard. The person whose life is marked by the sin that the world around us carries out, 
the one living regularly and repeatedly in sin, they're going to have a really tough time having effective prayers, wouldn't you say? I want you to realize, friends, this. Your relationship with God is impacted by your behavior and your mindset. Does that make sense to you that that's true? Your relationship with God is impacted by your behavior and your mindset. That is not me saying that you gain or lose salvation by you being good or being bad. Rather, I'm reminding us that our present fellowship with the Lord, your closeness to God, is impacted by your choices to follow God or ignore God. And that has been a biblical picture for all of Scripture. Let me read you a couple of verses from the book of Ezekiel, and you see if it rings familiar. Ezekiel 14, verses 1 through 3. God, this is so great. Then certain of the elders of Israel came to me and sat before me, and the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, these men have taken their idols into their hearts and set the stumbling block of their iniquity before their faces. Should I indeed let myself be consulted by them? You want to guess what the answer to that question is, by the way? God says, no, God is not going to let himself be approached by people who love their idols more than God. God says later in that, verse, in that section, by the way, he says, I'll tell you what, if they come talk to you, I'll answer them myself. And he doesn't say it in a nice way. Or how about these words from Isaiah 59, verses one through three. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood, and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies, your tongue mutters wickedness. God has always been clear that if we cling to sin in our lives, if you say, I like my sin, I'm keeping my sin, I don't care what God says, you will have a problem with your prayers. Even in this book, chapter 3, verse 7, just one chapter earlier from where we're reading today, Peter told husbands, likewise, husbands, Live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. If you're generally, genuinely, genuinely a Christian, let me just ask you this. Do you not want unhindered access to the throne of grace? You guys are going to say, yes, I want that kind of access, right? Yes. You, want, you want God to let you in and listen to you, right? Okay, well, a couple things you need to keep in mind. First, if you are a Christian, you don't earn favor with God by your good behavior. True? Okay, listen to me. God could not love you more, and God could not love you less. That's the beauty of a perfect, unchanging God, isn't it? 
Second, though our status as children of God is secure in Christ, our fellowship with God can be hindered if we chase after sin and worldly thinking. And we don't want our prayers hindered. And we don't want to grieve the Holy Spirit of God. We want fellowship with our God. And the way to do that is to live with your mind sober, set on eternity. Set your mind on eternity with Christ. Be self-controlled. Be sober. And then you'll be able to pray to your God freely and know that you're praying in accord with the perfect will of God. That is another reason to set your mind on eternity. Point number two, love one another. I know that sounds like a made-up command, but it's, it's, you find things like it in the Bible, I promise. Love one another. Look at verses 8 and 9. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality for one another without grumbling. Do you all remember when Jesus was asked, what's the most important commandment in the law? Remember that? How many commands did he give back? He gave two. He said, love God and love one another. Well, if you look look at the Ten Commandments, you could divide them up into that pretty much, couldn't you? The first half, love God. The second half, Love one another. And I'm finding, friends, that when I talk to people about what we want to be as a church, what we want to be, I keep finding myself saying, we just need to be a people who love God and love each other. That sounds pretty good, doesn't it? And if if Peter tried to get us to live with an eternal God-focused mindset, verse 7, now he turns us to the other side of living out the Christian faith. We've, We've been called to love God. Now he's going to call us to love one another. Now, take note right away. We get a major qualifier at the beginning of verse 8. It says, above all. Would you all say that that means something big is about to follow? God, by his Holy Spirit, inspires an apostle to say to us, hey guys, above all. I mean, doesn't that make you want to go, what? Do this above all. This is a big deal. Yeah, be moral. Yeah, be focused. And Christian, don't even begin to let go of the coming command. As important as anything that you're going to do, we as the church are supposed to keep on, to never, never, never stop loving one another. We are to do it earnestly, wholeheartedly, deeply, powerfully, sincerely loving one another. Another And friends, there is no tricky translation behind this passage to get you out of the requirement. Do you ever, you ever sometimes read a passage and think, man, I hope the Greek means something else than what I just saw? Not this time. It is of utmost importance that you become strong in your agape, your love for one another, for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. So here's the question. What does it mean to love one another? Now, that's at least one sermon or more in itself, wouldn't you say? Some pastors could make that 8, 12, 20 sermons. How about I just remind you of a couple things? Would you guys agree that to love one another 
That loving means that you do things that look like Jesus. God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5, 8. Thus, one thing you and I could say is that love is to have a genuine concern for and commitment to the well-being of another, even when that commitment is personally costly to you. Does that make sense? Love is a genuine concern for and commitment to the well-being of another, even when that commitment is personally costly to you. Jesus gave himself for us to save us. And we love one another when we give of ourselves to do good for each other. And that might mean giving to help somebody in need. Or that might mean having the courage to confront somebody who is in sin. Or you know what? Loving might be having the commitment to drag your poor self out of bed when a baby cries. Because it's not always easy. Loving husbands, loving your wife could actually mean that you stop thinking, maybe she'll think I'm asleep and go get it. I've done that before. (laughs) But Mitzi knew. (laughs) Love's not simple. Love isn't easy. But love is absolutely necessary for Christian living. So ask yourself, Christian, how are you loving others in the body of Christ? Whose life in this church are you investing in? Don't don't let this slide past you too quickly. Whose life in the church are you investing in? Are you trying actively, trying to do each other good? For whom do you give up your comforts? Into whom? Are you pouring your very best? Think also about this. What would you have to do if you were going to start loving others in the body better? Well, I mean, you'd have to take time out of yourself to spend time with other people, right? You think you could love people from a distance? Man, I am just pouring into them, though I don't talk to them. You've got to learn to care about the hopes and dreams, the pains and the sorrows of others. You might have to learn about things that interest other people in the body that do not interest you. I remember out of an effort to love my parents, I learned how NASCAR worked. I still feel kind of scarred. It's NASCAR weekend in Vegas, just know that. Look, if you're not taking time and energy from yourself to invest in the good of others and to be committed to the good of others, you are not obeying this command in the word of God. If you are keeping only to yourself and you don't make it to church and you don't take time to fellowship with other people in the body, you are not keeping this command. 
If you demand other people meet your needs, but you don't flex to meet the needs of others, you are not keeping this command. Now, one fascinating thing about loving one another is the fact that love covers a multitude of sins. That's a little more difficult to phrase than it might seem on the surface because what are we saying? Are we saying, well, Jesus' love is that which covers our sins? That's true for sure. Does it mean that if we love, we ignore the sins of others? No, I don't think so. I think that the best way to understand the phrase there is to remember that as Christians, we have been commanded by God to forgive one another even as the Lord has forgiven us in Christ. Matthew 6, 14 and 15, Colossians 3, uh, 14, uh, I'm sorry, Colossians 3, 13. So ask yourself this question, because if you want to know how to do biblical forgiveness, you've got to know this. How did Jesus forgive you? Well, God made a choice to be forgiving of you before you did anything, right? And so God took upon himself the cost of your sin. And then God granted forgiveness to you. He finalized the transaction when you repented and believed. And once God forgave you, God so covered your sins that he will never again bring your sins up against you to do you harm. Isn't that good news? By the way, be careful with things like Forgetting your sins? Does God forget our sins? Well, yes and no. As I've used as an illustration before, if God truly, completely forgot our sins, God would be very confused. God would look down at a, let's say, a young girl who got pregnant outside of marriage and, and then she came to him and she confessed her sins and he forgave her. God's not looking at going, where did that baby come from? I don't, I don't, I don't know where that kid came from. He doesn't forget like that. But God forgets in the sense that he says, I will not remember this against you to use it against you. A good study of biblical forgiveness demands that you and I do similar things to the way the Lord forgave us. So if a brother or sister in Christ sins against you, you need to begin, as God began with you, with your desire that you would be forgiving of them. You need to want to forgive them. Now, you cannot forgive unilaterally, but you can want to, okay? So then you communicate with them. You tell them what they've done to sin against you. And you say to them, I offer to you a gift of forgiveness. I want to forgive you. And whenever the person who sinned against you repents of their sin, you finish by granting them the gift of forgiveness. And in that gift of forgiveness is your willingness to so cover the sin that they have committed against you that you will not ever bring that sin up against them with the intention of hurting them. You will do everything you can to restore the relationship with them as much as you can when you grant forgiveness. Jay Adams always said that forgiveness means I make a commitment not to bring your sin up to you, to other people, or to myself. Now, as sinful human beings, we need to know that our forgiveness and our repentance is never perfect, is it? Have you ever repented perfectly of any sin? So I'd be careful expecting that of other people. 
And in the real world, some relationships can only be restored so far. But as we love one another in Christ, we offer forgiveness and we grant forgiveness when people repent and we do everything we can to let our Christian love cover a multitude of sins. Now that teaches us Christians, once you and I grant forgiveness, once we cover somebody's sins, We don't sit around and live in bitterness against them. And we don't live in superiority. If you actually forgive another Christian, you refuse to let yourself feel that you're better than the person you forgave. You refuse to let yourself badmouth that person. You refuse to throw that person's prior sin up in their face. And the only way that as a Christian you ever bring up somebody's past failure, their forgiven failure, the only way you bring it up is when you do that for their good, but never to hurt them or never to embarrass them. And if you want to learn more about this, again, this is a giant topic. I really recommend the book by Chris Brauns, B-R-A-U-N-S, the book Unpacking Forgiveness. It's the best thing I've read on how to explain that forgiveness is not unilateral. Forgiveness is not unconditional even, but if we're going to forgive biblically, we do what Christ did, which is we forgive based on repentance and we forgive by covering sins, as, as it says here. So if you want to know more, read Chris Braun's Unpacking Forgiveness, or feel free to come talk to me, and I'll help you with the process, okay? Now, we're supposed to love one another. How do we do that? What do we have to do? Peter follows up the call to genuine, strong love, sin-covering love, forgiving love, with the command that we practice hospitality, Interesting, the the word for hospitality that he uses there, it appears two times in the writings of Paul, and it's in the qualifications for church elders. Peter is clear that this is not something just for elders. This is a command of God on any true believer. We are the kind of people that open our lives to each other. Often, that is done by opening our homes to each other. We, we, We... we eat meals together, maybe at a house, maybe at a restaurant. We, we care for each other in times of need, and we do it without grumbling. We do it without griping. Ah, oh, gotta have people over. We do it without being selfish. So again, ask yourself on these last bits, how am I doing? How are you doing? Are you the kind of person who offers forgiveness to people who sin against you? Do you you cover over their sins with love once they repent of sin and ask for forgiveness? Is your home, is your life, is it open to other people in the church? Now again, maybe your house doesn't work for hosting parties. That's fine. But how do you work in your life to let other people know I'm here for you. How do you let people know you care for them? How do you let people know you will give them your time and your very best? Don't let this go. Because Christian, the command of God on your Christian life is to love one another, forgive one another, and be hospitable to one another. Third point. Last point. Serve with purpose. Serve with purpose. 10 and 11. 
As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. That makes sense, doesn't it? As good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who, as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So here's the final section for this morning. And Peter continues the theme of us loving God and loving each other. In verse 10, he continues to direct us how to keep the command of God to love others, especially others in the local church with us. Peter says, each of us has received a gift. Now, that, that might sound new to you, or it might, might sound really familiar. You may have heard it a lot. If, if you were with the men at the men's breakfast, we talked about this a week ago. So I think that's kind of cool. Or the passages we read this morning, all gift-oriented passages. But, but simply put, whenever a person is saved, God does some wonderful things. A person who is saved is forgiven of his or her sin and is granted the legal record of the perfection of Jesus Christ. And, and the Holy Spirit of God indwells, lives in, makes a home in all believers. Me, me, meaning God, God comes to you and lives in you in a really new, really glorious way. And the Spirit of God living within each believer grants every believer a spiritual gift or, or maybe even a set of spiritual gifts. So what are spiritual gifts? Well, they're supernatural graces. They're given by the Spirit of God to help us become the church that the Lord wants this church to be. Now listen to me. If you are a Christian, you have at least a gift from God's Spirit that God intends you to use as a member of your local church. These gifts are not for your glory, they're not for your curiosity. They're not for entertainment, as some people think spiritual gifts might be. Spiritual gifts are graces from God to help you participate in the building up of the church to the glory of God for the good of others. Now, you can learn about spiritual gifts if you study the writings of Paul in Romans 12, especially 4 through 8 or Ephesians 4, 7 through 16, or 1 Corinthians chapters 12, 13, and 14. And, and that would be a really good sermon series, just to do all those together at some point. It would be a good sermon series. But today we're just going to look at what our text calls us to do today. And Peter wants us to be good stewards, like good household managers, good stewards of our gifts by being sure to use them to serve one another. And he divides the spiritual gifts for all believers into two simple general categories, speaking or serving gifts. Man, some believers are gifted to teach. Have you ever noticed that? Some folks, man, they just talk, 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 talk. They keep you late in Sunday school. Some, some are gifted to speak or to teach. And, and these are men and women uniquely graced by God with the ability to learn from the word of God and to communicate the word of God to other believers. 
You will spot someone gifted in teaching if he or she has the ability to study the Bible and then speak it to you in a way that helps you better understand it and apply it. Which means it's more than someone being a smarty smarty. It's someone who can understand and then make it understandable to you. People gifted to speak the word, they just seem to have a powerful ability to make the word of God clear and convicting. And the person truly gifted to teach relies on scripture fully. Peter says, do do this like you're speaking oracles of God to the people of God. When I tell you God's word, I'm not trying to tell you what I think. I really, really want you to hear God challenging you in his word. Now, speaking or teaching, it can be in a public setting, but it can be in a private setting, right? Some people do speak from a pulpit or from a classroom. Some people speak and communicate the truth of God really well across a kitchen table or a coffee table. Some people speak the word of God to God's people from a podcast. And the Lord uses every last one of those things and a thousand other settings besides to build up the body of Christ to the glory of God. And if you've been gifted to teach, you need to use that. But there are also gifts of serving. And you'll know that you've got a gift for serving. Uh, One way is if teaching, preaching, and proclamation aren't your thing. Right? Well, I know it's not this. must be that. That that helps, right? But maybe God, God has made you especially eager and willing and able to help others or to give to others or to take care of others or to encourage others or to comfort others. Maybe you are the kind of person that you just see needs and you love to find people and ways to help meet those needs. That is a type of giftedness from God, and it is absolutely necessary for the survival of the church. We need preachers. We need speakers. We need teachers and evangelists, yes, but we need, we need equipment haulers, and we need meal cookers. How many of you have been blessed tremendously by somebody bringing you food when you needed food? Yes. Amen, right? We, we, we need... We need chair stackers and baby rockers and much, much more. And becoming a sweet, comforting listener, becoming a person who quietly gives, maybe even gives financially because God's blessed you financially to meet other people's needs, that is a giftedness from God. And you and I are supposed to use our serving gifts in the strength God has given us. Now, do notice that neither category of giftedness assumes that you're not responsible to the Lord in other ways. Speakers need to be kind servers, too. And sometimes, even if you love to serve, you find yourself in a situation where you've got to tell the truth of the word to another person. We're supposed to do what God calls us to do in all things. But you're going to find in the church There are ways that you most honor the Lord. There are ways that you most help others. And the trick here is that you've got to start by knowing, yes, God has gifted me in some way. And then once you figure out how God has uniquely gifted you, go serve. Do stuff in the church. As you do more stuff in the church, you're going to find out how has God uniquely gifted and shaped you to minister to other people. 
Because see, the graces of God on your life are unique. The gifts you have are different than the gifts I have. God has made each of us unique. Wouldn't you agree with that? So start praying and saying, God, help me figure out what it is you've made me to be. And especially pray, God, how do I be what you've made me to be at this particular point and stage of my life? Because your spiritual gifts may grow. Your spiritual gifts might even change. You ever think about that? That there are gifts that God gives people for seasons that maybe change to other things at other seasons? But you are gifted by the Spirit of God. You, Christian, if you're a Christian, have been gifted by the Spirit of God. And you need to use the gifts God has given you for the betterment of this local church. Or whatever church you're a member of. And by the way, I'm going to say it again. You need to be a member of a local church. Now, why would we love the church like this? Peter says we do this in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So we we had the, the command there to love one another through our gifts, right? And then what do we find out? That we do this so that we love the Lord our God. We serve and we love each other because we want everything that we do to be to the ultimate glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because to Jesus belongs all glory, all dominion forever. Jesus is glorified as God the Father is glorified because the God of the Bible, the only true God, is one God revealed to us in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Jesus has glory and dominion because Jesus is God as the Father is God, as the Spirit is God, and we live to honor that one true God. And why would we want to glorify Jesus like this? I mean, we could come up with a thousand reasons, but how about I give you one? Jesus died and rose again to save our souls from the wrath of God that we've earned. Isn't that a reason that would make you want to glorify your Lord Jesus? So here's the message we need to remember, friends. God is absolutely holy. God is absolutely just. And every one of us has failed to honor God perfectly. We've rebelled against God's commands in so many ways. And our rebellion against God earns us the judgment of God. Well, if God carries out his judgment on us, we will suffer forever in hell for our offenses against God because God is infinitely perfect and our offenses are an infinite crime against him. That is a just penalty. That's the right penalty. And there's not a single good deed you could do to get out of it on your own. But the good news is God has chosen to save a people for himself. Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, came to this earth and he lived a life of perfect righteousness. Then Jesus died as a sacrificial substitute, taking on himself the proper punishment that you and I deserve for our sins. And Jesus rose from the dead after sacrificing himself, and that proved that his work was done and that his sacrifice was acceptable to God. And here's the point. If you are a human being, now did I include all of you in that? I want to be sure. Are you human? Okay. If you are a human being, you need the forgiveness of God. 
And the only way to ever be forgiven by God is for you to turn away from your sins and cry out to Jesus in faith for forgiveness. If you refuse to do that, God will allow you to face his eternal wrath as your sin deserves. But for everyone who cries out to Jesus in genuine faith and repentance, we're under the grace of God. We're forgiven because of Jesus' sacrifice. And we're made right in God's sight because of Jesus' perfection. So let's wrap up with a couple calls here. If you don't know Jesus, I urge you, stop being the boss of your life. Turn from sin and trust in Jesus. Cry out to him for mercy. And if you need to help to know what that means or what that looks like, come talk to me afterwards. I'd love to help. If you do know Jesus, then give him great glory and great honor by doing what the Lord has commanded us to do in this text to live out the Christian life together. Live with your mind set on eternity. Recognize that forever is a whole lot bigger than today. Love one another. By the way, you think living with your mind set on eternity will help you love one another better? I sure do. Love one another. Serve with purpose. Or if you really want to make it super simple, think about forever and love God and love one another with everything you've got. Let's pray together.